Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we start this week's Hedge Hopping Sortie, little shout out to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers which start from just £3 a month. We know you all do so much for supporting us and we are ever so grateful for that. But if you're able to give us a bit of help through Patreon, we can keep this podcast going from strength to strength. We all thank you for your continued support. And without further ado, here's Hedge Hopping. Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War air power podcast, Hedge Hopping, with me, Matt Bowen. When we think of Bomber Command today, our minds usually go to the young men in Lancasters in the dark over Germany, bouncing bombs and night fighters. Well, that view is correct. The journey to get there was a fraught one, and the years of Bomber Command at the beginning of the war saw it fighting a very different sort of campaign. For today's Hedge Hopping Sortie, we are delighted to be hosted at the Michael Beetham Conservation Centre at RAF Cosford, where we're going to be looking at two of Bomber Command's early aircraft, which are currently under restoration by the RAF Museum. We're going to be looking at the Handley Page Hamden and the incredible Vickers Wellington. Our host today, we're delighted to say, is Darren Priday, who is the manager of the Michael Beetham Conservation Centre. And hello, Darren, how have you been? Very well, thank you. Yeah. I guess we have to ask this. How's lockdown been for you and, and, the, and the chaps and ladies here? Um, yeah, well, to be honest with you, we've, we've been carrying on working lots of full team throughout lockdown. Um, we have our uh, obligations to the National Collection, which is what we look after. It's not, it's not a private collection owned by the museum. You know, we're on the same sort of level as the Science Museum, Natural History Museum, all them. So, you know, these objects belong to the nation. So we had an obligation to look after them. But all, you know, and that's simple little things like making sure tyre pressures are up. You know, if you leave it for four months during a lockdown, you suddenly come back, find they're all on their rims. You've done a lot of damage. So coming to that, but also... Um, uh, our legal requirements for things like uh, firearms, radiation, mm -hmm. all this was sort of coming in, still doing the checks on them during lockdown. So I guess one question to ask is, who was Michael Beetham? Well, Michael Beetham was a Second World War Lancaster pilot and then had a very long and distinguished career and become Chief of Air Staff. And unlike most Chief of Air Staff, he actually did get to the very top rank, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, where some of them fall one short. Mm -hmm. um, Things he was—he uh, brought the tornado into the uh, into RAF service, uh, and one thing that we all services nowadays um, require is reserve forces, and it was his idea to get the RAF uh, reserve forces built up. And also, he was involved um, with the bombing of Port Stanley during the Falklands War. You know, it was his idea to send a Falcon Vulcan all the way down there. And um, I think most people probably ended up on the floor laughing. <laughs> impossible, impossible, as we know, um, Black Buck and. 
that was a successor, yeah, and the building here uh, was previously built uh, and opened by him in 2002. Yes, and it's, it's a beautiful facility and we've, uh, we've been very fortunate to have a mooch around, which we will come back to in a, in a moment. And I guess as we're sat here looking around, how many projects do you guys have on the go at, at any one time? Well, you've mentioned the Hamden and Wellington. We've got a Lysander in here. We've got the Dornier. Uh, we've got an LVGC6, which we haven't seen yet, which is just around the back. Um, we've got a range safety launch as well, so we don't just do aeroplanes. We, we, we can do anything. What else have we got in here? Um, there's, a, there's a few engines lying around, which um, uh, if they're going potentially up for going out on loan or coming back from an external loan where we've loaned some of our objects, we bring them back here and do the condition reports. So a few other bits and pieces sat around like that. But yeah, a lot of... A lot of history in here. We might come back to the dining later because we're very lucky to have a little look around at that. Um, I keep saying we because for this I've brought a friend. Now, dragging him out of the Mary Rose, which is our virtual pub, normally Chris Sams is a bosey sort of chap, but he's actually also written a book about early bomber command. Its title is Flying into the Storm. RAF Bombers at War, 1939 to 1942. And as we're talking about Early Bomber Command, he was the perfect person to bring along with me on the road trip. Chris, how have you been? Yeah, great. I'm really quite excited. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's going to be pictures of him with his head in various aircraft looking like a child. Well, he looks like a child most of the time, but <laughs> there we go. So what are your first impressions of the two aircraft we're going to be chatting about? Um, with the Hamden, I mean, I, you, you just, when you read about how cramped they were and what the crew's experience were, it's not until you're poking your head inside and think, actually, yeah, you really can't move around in here. It is really quite crammed. Um, and the Wellington, again, is just the, the geo, um, geodexic uh, design is just fantastic. It's just more beautiful than I could imagine, really. It, it, it really is. It, it's breathtakingly beautiful design. But we're going to come to that in a moment because we're going to start with the Hamden because it is... A very, very rare beast, and we're, we're saying it's, it's not—it's not particularly wide. Um, Darren told me it was 36 inches across, which is the same size as my jeans. So that's um, that's a bit of bit of a worry. But interestingly, at Ham, Handley Page, she had a German designer, didn't she? Yeah, that's um, Gustav Lachmann. Interesting story. Um, uh, he was an avi early aviator, but when he went through his college and university, he was trying to design the leading edge, well, what we call slats nowadays. Mm -hmm. And Hanley Page at that time were looking at that himself and heard about him and went across to Germany and met him. Um, I think there was a few years passed, and then he came over and started working in the UK for Hanley Page. Um, of course, then war kicks, the design of the Hamden, war kicks off. We have a German working for a British aircraft manufacturer. Didn't go down too, too well with MI five, I don't know if six, whichever deals with the interior, and they um, locked him up, sent him off to Canada. Uh, and then, under protest from Hanley Page, he did come back uh, to the Isle of Man in UK, uh, but was still imprisoned and turned prison, and was working for Hanley Page. And once the war was over, he came out and he worked the rest of his career as a Handley Page employee and became a British citizen. And we were trying to work out the year. We, it was late 50s, I think, but he soon became a British citizen. It's an interesting design because we were chatting earlier and it's the same specification as the Wellington, very different output to it. Um, but I guess as we're here, do you just want to describe her? Granted, she, she doesn't have her wings on, but do you want to just describe her to the listener who may not be familiar with the aircraft? Yeah, so she's a con conventional um, aeroplane that you, you're buying as an Airbus design. So it's got your frames, your longs, your spars, 
ribs, all these sort of thing, all the all the buzzwords that you would hear normally. Um, very, very narrow, as we mentioned, th- 36 inches for anybody that's metric, that's about 93 centimetres. Um, she was actually designed as a fighter bomber, because um, when you think about it, it was nine th- B-932 was the um, air ministry specification. In those days, it's probably right to think that if you were designing a new modern aeroplane, she would be better than the fighters of the day. But obviously at that time, uh, Messerschmitt, Hawker, and the Supermarine were suddenly de- developing these uh, super fighters that were uh, out in the Second World War. So, you know, the fighter element of a Hamden never really happened. Um, very, very long, very, very narrow. Uh, flying suitcase, flying tadpole, various names like that. The, the Germans used to call her the barn door. Uh, <laughs> I think we can understand why, and a nice broad side to, to her. Yes, so very nice. Four, four sections, forward fuselage, rear fuselage, tail boom, and then the tail group. Tail group consisting of twin fin, twin rudder. Uh, again, because it was an early uh, aeroplane, we're talking fabric-covered flying controls. For um, example, here on the uh, elevator and, and, and the rudder, you can go and see all the fabric covering. Um, yeah, but this one was uh, shot down. That's the interesting story on this one. Before we get to that bit, let's just run through the, the vital statistics. So she's got two radial engines. Yep, Bristol Pegasus 18s, just short of 1,000 bhp each. What bomb load could she carry? 1.8 tons. And defensive armament, we were chatting about this earlier, was yeah. increased, but basically it was... Initially, fixed forward firing Browning, I think it would have been for the pilot. The, because there were four crews, so the pilot had a gun, fixed firing, uh, fixed forward firing. Um, the navigator, bomb aimer, had a machine gun, that would have been um, Vickers. Then the wireless operator and the rear... Um, Rear gunner would have had also had their own guns. Yeah, and we spoke a little bit about it. The initial design for the upper gunner, so that would have been your wireless operator's position, he had a single gun. And if you could see any videos or f- footage of the early Hamdens, you might just see on the port s- uh, starboard side, um, just half of the upper cupola, a little dark line. And that's where they used to put the holster. They put it, drop the gun down inside, and, and the rear cupola then would c- close down flush. But quite early, there was a modification done where they had the two distinct cutouts put in for the twin guns. But also as well on the side, the early photos, you may not see what you can see on our one now. There's a, uh, let's say it's about an A4 piece of paper sort of size, um, sort of just forward, just behind the pilot's area and the rear spar, just forward where the wireless operator would have been. And that would have been to, to put a gun for anything attacking wingtip to wingtip. But again, that would have been a single gun. It wasn't fixed, so the crew would have had to grab the gun thrown it out, put it in, locked it actually into place, otherwise you would shoot yourself up, there was a cam to stop that happening. Um, but then you can imagine, you know, this gun's getting hot through firing, the pilot's throwing the airplane all over the place, um, you're in all your flying suits, you're hot, you're bothered, you're being shot at, and then you've got to try and take it out, spin it around in this 36 inches, I'm sure the gun will be wider than 36 inches, drop it in the other side for an airplane coming back at you, so very interesting. Again, never really heard of anybody that I've met over the years that have ever been involved in that process, but... I dare say there must have been somebody out there who must have had to do it at one time. So what, what, what's the story for this particular aircraft that you guys have here? Um, Hamdens were on Bomber Command in the early days, obviously on things like Flying Trainer Command to train the pilots, but then they come out of favour when the, the, the big four-engine bombers come in. But they were still still there. And this one ended up on Coastal Command, was converted from, uh, from a B-1 to TB-1, TB and Torpedo. Um, and then... Uh, there were 32 Hamdens set, set up to fly on uh, an operation called Operation Orator, and this was to protect the Arctic convoys. Uh, there's a very good program on the telly about um, 
if you like Jeremy Clarkson, uh, it was him that hosting it. Um, it's Arctic Convoys and it's about re, uh, Route PQ17. These are going from the sort of Scottish Locks area out up around uh, Iceland, up towards Greenland, and then sort of as far north as the ice sheet will allow, and then dropping into a port in northern Russia called Archangel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on that route, again, if you watch the program, it will become quite clear we lost a hell of a lot of ships. I think it was something like uh, 28 out of 40. Two, so it's something like sixty-six. Most of, most of the convoy, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of convoy, and that was because the navy protection um, heard that the turpits was coming, and they were sent that way to look at the turpits, and then they were sort of sitting ducks. So the air ministry stepped in for the last route in that that group of um, convoys, uh, PQ eighteen, and sent say thirty-two Hamdens out to northern Russia, uh, or torpedo carrying. And so they all September forty-two would have shot left Lucas in Scotland up to Sumber in the Shetland Islands, and that's the last time they're on sort of a UK territory, British territory, and then on the night like, of the 4th of September, they were making the, the hop across towards uh, Murmansk in, in Northern Russia. They were aiming slightly further south in, in Murmansk, some of the airfields down there, the reason being not that far from Murmansk, only about 100 kilometres, almost in a straight line, there was a Luftwaffe base at a place called Petsamo. Uh, so 32 took off, uh, two squadrons, uh, 144, 455, that was a Royal Australian squadron, 16 from each, and nine airplanes were lost, you know, over 25% were lost trying to get them out there. What happened with this one? Um, it suffered some icing problems going across um, Scandinavia at some point, probably Sweden, neutral Sweden. Uh, shouldn't have been flying that area, but they were. Um, and the navigation, they, you know, we're talking on quite a lot. And with operational limit of the Hamden, it was probably about an eight hour op with the westerly winds that we get this part of the world, you know, um, throwing them that way as well, hoping to get there. Um, and anyway, the, it didn't take a lot to be off course and they were slightly further north, um, flew directly above Petsamo. So again, you know, we're talking in Arctic Circle, yeah. nothing up there, you know, not, not millions of air bases or air defences and just really protecting this airfield and just wrong place, wrong time. Some ground fire and there's some shrapnel damage on it, but also they witnessed uh, two Messerschmitt 109s take off engage. Uh, and brought her down. Uh, the pilot had been um, incapacitated and, and he was the one that declared a ditch. It wasn't the fact that the aircraft was going to go into a crash landing or anything like that, so it was a sort of controlled crash. Just talk about the crew, there were five actually on board because all 32 aircraft were carrying a technician. We're taking it out to Russia. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows how. Nobody knows what a Hamden looked like or how to put fuel, bomb loads and all the, all the usual maintenance stuff required, so all 32 say, were carrying technicians. Um, Robertson, he was our wireless operator, Sergeant Robertson. Um, sadly, he was very first train uh, operation out of training, and he was killed. Uh, Daniel Garrity was our wireless operator, uh, was our gunner, most likely a wireless operator as well. Um, he was killed during the air battle. Um, I don't know too much about Daniel Garrity. Robert Robertson, um, sadly, his son passed away uh, just recently, but he was a good friend of mine. We used to keep in contact a lot, and was very involved with with our project. So that was two out of the five. Then in the, in the nose section, so really behind the Perspex greenhouse front nose, these type of airplanes, there was a Canadian who was Flight Sergeant uh, Gordon Miller. He survived the air battle. He was the one that was guiding uh, our pilot where the Germans were coming in from. Um, but sadly, when the aircraft crash landed, or the control landing in the forest area, he, he was also killed. Uh, the good news is then it gets a little bit better. Uh, the pilot did survive. Um, and also the technician on board, that was uh, Corporal George Shepherd. pilot's name was uh, Perry. Uh, he, he survived and both ended up, um, actually 
Perry was left at the aircraft site. He was made to by George Shepard, the technician, and George did, did the right thing, was running west to try and um, escape the Germans, uh, but he was on the run for about 36 hours, got captured, and then both of them ended up, his POWs um, went through the process at Petsamo, uh, both then transferred into Germany, um, Perry went to three, George went to eight, um, and they never met again, um, not, not, not to our knowledge anyway, we don't think they did. But interestingly, they were both involved in death marches, along marches, uh, towards yeah. the end of the war, and then both repatriated back to Cosford. Um, and oh, George, George spent six months, uh, three months in the hospital here, but Perry also came here as well. So that's why I'm sort of wondering if they ever met. They may have met and not mentioned it to their families. There was a chance. They could have even been in the same ward and not realised, you know, but they were that close to each other. But then I suppose there was always this possibility they may have been here at slightly different times. Perry may not. I'm not sure how long Perry was here for. Um, so, yeah, just going back to uh, Robertson, Garrity and Miller, uh, they, their bodies, their dead bodies were covered by the Germans, taken back, and they were given four military honours at um, the German cemetery at Petsalmo. Sadly, after the war, uh, Stalin had all those, all the graves are uh, Bordeaux, so there was no chance of finding their bodies sure. and bringing them, repatriating them back to the UK, which I know um, Robertson desperately was trying to do for his father, but uh, that, that just was never, never going to happen, sadly. So yeah, that sort of uh, covers that. And then, so she's on, we got a crashed airplane in the middle wilderness in northern Russia. Um, so how did it become come to here in the, in the MBCC. Um, well, as soon as the Berlin Wall came down, it was like 1989, that allowed aviation enthusiasts to go out, get permits to go out that area and start looking for these aeroplanes, and that's when this one was found. Quite interestingly, uh, the first number they came across um, was actually on the tail boom, L6012, and that caused a hell of a stir, because when they looked up the records, that was actually a Hereford. <laughs> one thing with the Hamden, um, it, it's not, it was very interchangeable, and that proves it. Yep. Uh, um, part of the history of this aircraft had a Hanson taxi into the tail when they needed a replacement. Herefords are only 100 manufactured, exactly the same aeroplane, the only difference being a Napier Dagger engine against the um, Pegasus 18. Uh, so yeah, the tail boom was in, but the, when you actually looked at the tail boom, P1344, our aircraft number was actually painted on it. But what you have to remember is it was 49 years in the wilderness and that was fading off because that was done on the squadron by Tom. But the paint, the actual number that had been put on in the factory, L6012, was underneath. Um, and that was the one that was put on properly, and that was the one that was sort of coming through, yeah. So, yeah, eventually it was found. Um, so then the ownership then was a Canadian, um, his name was uh, Mahal. Uh, he got it brought back to the UK. Uh, we have a picture over there of the assembled aeroplane. I'll say that in inverted commas, and this we're talking, I'm forgetting we're talking about a crashed aeroplane here. But um, that's when the first museum first got to see it, so that would have been sometime in the 90s. Um, and they decided, yes, we don't have a Hamden in our collection, it would be great to restore the aeroplane some point um, and we swapped it I believe somebody, somebody said it was for two Spitfires some say one Spitfire so I believe we swapped it for Spitfire which is in those days museum currency we don't have a lot of Spitfires <laughs> left for swap so uh, anymore so I think yeah we wouldn't go down that be able to go down that route so often so yeah so that's how she ended up in the UK she was at the followed the muse, uh, Irish Museum sort of restoration stroke conservation centres around she was at um, the Carnton air balloon sheds when they were there mm. and then moved to Whitton while this place was being built then came here and again, now, so you know, we're talking early 90s. She come back here now. We're sort of 30 years later uh, after her discovery, and she's only just going on display. And the reason behind that, it was always a um, 
project. It was always going to be a long-term project. That's extremely long-term, I must admit. But there was never really any priority. Mm-hmm. Whilst the museum had exhibitions being done elsewhere, the team from here, because we, we based at Cosford, we work for the RF Museum, we can easily be working down at Hendon, moving a Spitfire or Lancaster around and whatever, you know, my team, and that's what they've been doing over the years and various other projects around the UK we've been involved with. The RF Centenary Tour, we were highly involved in that. So the Hamden was always sort of somebody chipped away for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then left, and left, and left. And one day, um, one of my technicians, um, Dave Carr, said to me, he said, do you know what, if you want the Hamden built, he said, leave it to me, I'll build it to you. And that was about, about five years ago. And then from what we had left, he built the forward fuselage. Um, what you can see externally, that the forward fuselage is a replica. Uh, using technical drawings, we've got all the handy page drawings, uh, all the fixtures and fittings inside are of the type would have been used by the Hamden. Um, but he's made all the framework and everything. Um, the rear fuselage is about 95% original. Uh, the tail boom, we've got the original tail boom. When we looked at it with all the da- crash damage on it and all the shrapnel damage, if we were going to take all that out or we'll make it strong enough to be able to be an, uh, a safe exhibit to put on public display, we reckon we'd have cut half of it away. So in the end, we made the decision, even though we'd started a little bit of work on it, to manufacture a new one. And the idea would being, as you can see how she's displaying now with the tail up high, rather than on her tail wheel. We've got an area underneath where the museum can consider putting the original tail boom to help to tell the story with this L6012 quite clearly on there and the red paint on top. And the, the, the tail itself is about 30, 35% original. Um, so what we had come back, we've incorporated every piece of that into into, into the new build. Um, so yeah, so that's what we've got now. Um, as for the wings, at the moment we're not making the wings, because just showing you just now, that the good thing is, um, uh, with the Hamden, when she goes on public display, what the museum are looking at, because the wing's not there, you don't have the wing box, and that's an area the public can get into, they can see what it's like narrow this 36 inch dimension but they can look forward and see the bomb aimers position all the instruments they can look where the pilot would sit they can look back and see the in the radios and things like that so it's a chance without physically getting inside an airplane to actually look inside an airplane so it may make it an interesting display when when she goes down to Hendon. and the last little thing that we've done here we've put a low wattage uh, 24 volt system into the lighting uh, lighting so we can fix the switches on and light her all up inside so as she would have been She's a beaut. I don't know. She's absolutely gorgeous. And once once she's on display, that little view that you should have stick, sort of sticking your head up in, in, in the middle is, is quite something. And eye-opening in just how small it actually yeah. is. When you think of pilot, flying gear, parachutes, helmets, cables, oxygen masks, it's, it is really, it's really small. But one question before we go over to Chris. How many of them are left? Is that it? Um, there were one. I'm, I'm, I'm tired from the heat at the moment. I've had a long day. There was either 1,430 manufactured or 1,340. I can't remember which way around it is at the moment. Someone will know. Out there. It is warm. It's, one, it's one of it's one of those. Two. It's one of those two. Yes. So how many are, how many are left? Um, our one. PLJ no section. This is PLK. This shot down on the same evening, so it was one of the nine. It was lost. Lost. That's up at East Kirkby, mm-hmm. as the Brian Nichols project. And the only other one of significant size I'm aware of is in the um, Canadian Museum over near Vancouver, oh, right, okay. over the far side, um, in British Columbia. From 
I'm not, I'm not being rude because if you read the website, um, it needs a lot of restoration work from 50 yards away. When you're walking towards it, it looks like a hammer. And when you get up, you can see it's, it's been recovered from water. Um, like the wing shapes there, but there's a lot of wood inside holding it up, so it does need a lot of work. But again, it, it, yeah, I've, I have visited it. Um, there's not a lot inside that one either. Um, we've got quite a lot of ice populated out inside, which is nice. So yeah, so what's that? One fuselage, one nose section, and one sort of a hand and waiting restoration. And that's it. It's it's been a real treat to be able to get up and, and have a look. So we thank you so much for that. We've we've been geeking out quite hard so far, but. Let's talk about what Hamden's got up to, which is the whole reason I've brought Chris and not just someone to chat to on the car ride in traffic on the M6. So we're going to talk about two types of operations that were given the code names nickel and gardening. Gardening, I can say that. Um, we're going to start with nickels because at the start of the war, Bomber Command wasn't actually bombing, was it, Chris? No, um, the, there was a concern that if you bomb a civilian target, the Germans would uh, retaliate. And the French government were very adamant that um, no one should be launching bombers from, from French territory to drop anything on German territory in case Paris was destroyed or they retaliated against the French. The British had the, the Ruhr plan in which they were going to decimate the industrial heartland. But again, there was this squeamishness that they might hit civilian targets. So the main two objects, uh, two main objectives they could carry out was uh, attacking the German Navy because there are no civilian targets there, or nickel operations of dropping propaganda leaflets across Germany, which they argued was a good um, a good way to acc acclimatise crews for navigation and long distance flying. So if you could drop leaflets, you could drop a bomb, in theory. So you're going to fly all the way to Germany through potentially flak and fighter defences to drop paper. Yes, but there wasn't that many, in 1939 to 1940, early 1940, there weren't that many fighter defences, especially night fighter defences. You get the odd sighting of an aircraft, of an aeroplane. We, we think of the later, later war with the flak belts and um, the radar systems. Again, that one didn't exist so much. And so it was a lot, it was a, a lot, a lot easier mission. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Can't, can't remember off the top of my head what the casualty ratings were, but it wasn't high to enemy action, usually um, crash landings or um, engine faults. How effective were the leaflets? Germany continued to fight the war, <laughs> so no, not very. Um, it did sort out the German shortage of toilet paper, I believe, as, as, as the leaflets did for us. It's, it's interesting, as I said in the introduction, we have this idea of the bombing campaign um, very much of the, of the later war, but there's... The tactics, I don't, I don't want to say squeamishness, but the, the worry about civilian casualties just was so heightened at the start, wasn't it? That the, the, the concerns were there to not, to not use the weapons that they had to the full ability. Well, yeah, there was the, the, the 
whole pre-war hype of the bomber will get through, and then there was going to be the, the Luftwaffe knockout blow on London, which we have the air raid warning on the um, 3rd of September, as soon as the war is declared, um, and the whole um, Doe-style um, plans for destroying cities. No one wanted to be the cause. No one wanted to fire first. It was like the naval build-up the, before the First World War. No one wanted to be the first one. And then the nuclear age, no one wanted to be the first one to fire. So it was that that kind of ideal and no one wanted to be the first one it was all right for the for, against poland sorry alina the germans were happily were happily destroyed warsaw by air but the whole idea of bombing a french town or a british town was likewise the other way just too terrible it just wasn't a, um, i mean for the, during the battle of britain you had to have an express order from hitler to bomb london until they got a bit lost yeah yeah but then um, the raf night bombing had the same problem of getting lost oh, there was that Whitley that I was talking about in the car up where they were coming down coming back from a nickel raid and they landed in the countryside because they were short of fuel and so the whole crew gets out and they start trying to find some villagers to ask you know, where are we and they go up and they've got the map and they're talking to these villagers saying well, where are we and one of, the, one of the crew says I don't think they're speaking French sir then they realise that the policeman that's circling towards them is a German and that they're on the wrong side of the border, so everyone has to flee back to the Whitley, get the engine started whilst the policeman is calling up soldiers, and, be, and they take off to rifle fire, um, and found, I think they're only about five, ten miles short of the border. It, you know, one of the bits that comes across in your book as well is the conditions, even for the crews inside these aircraft, were, were pretty rough. Long distances, unheated, icing, and just freezing temperatures. Oh, absolutely. Um, again, again with Whitley, I, I kind of concentrated on Whitley's during the nickel phase um, because you get these great stories of they had well, on one of the flights they hadn't heard from the forward gunner, so someone the pilot nudged the co-pilot and said, "Go, go and see how he is," and they found him unconscious in a pile of snow <laughs> because it was actually snow. It was so cold; it was snowing within the, within the aircraft. They used to have um, they used to use their tea, the thermos of tea, to try and keep the pipes warm, the rubber uh, rubber pipes inside warms because they get brittle and snap. You, you sort of worry about flak. You worry about fighters getting frostbite. Probably is, isn't isn't one of them. Because I guess just coming back to you, Darren, there's not a lot in there for crew comfort, is there? No. Um, and just carrying on that conversation about the cold, I had the pleasure of meeting a, a gentleman who was a hundred Hamden pilot, uh, Dan Littlehampton. Again, my head is so bad I, I can't remember names at the moment. It'll pop to me in a minute. Yeah, he ended up wing commander. The, the story was I was going down to give, giving a talk to uh, the, the Aircrew Association for his 100th birthday on the Hamden because that's what obviously while he was fine. I think he did 60, 62 ops on the Hamden. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, to all, every German, major German city in the Hamden, he, he was telling me. But initially they, they, they said, oh, we've got this gentleman coming from the RF Museum. He wants to chat to you about Hamdens. I don't go out on the evenings, blah, blah, blah. All the users, about 10 minutes later, said, I'll give him 10 minutes. So anyway, they arranged, we met, I mean, we did meet up on the evening before my talk. Two hours later, yeah. yeah. We couldn't shut him up. We said, look, come on, you've got to get back to bed. You know, we've got a big day tomorrow with the talk at lunchtime and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, there, there was one interesting part that because I, I, I asked him the question, how warm, how cold was it in the Hamden? And he said, yeah, we used to come back from these raids and we were rigid, really rigid. He said, even in the summer, you could hit the wrong type of cloud or whatever and you'd be rigid. So the ground crew were dragging us out. Then his next sentence was, oh, did you know we used to get a, a food bag? Well, yeah, we knew you were supplied with food. Yeah, so we used to get these lovely pies. So do you know what we used to do? We used to give him to the navigator and he would hang him in his back on the end of the air conditioning pipe, or the, the heating pipe. So I said, well, so you were freezing cold in the cockpit. 
but you wanted to have a warm pipe. So why didn't you have a cold pipe and let the heat come back to you? Oh, no, 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 we had to have warm pipes. So he would rather freeze and have a warm pipe than the other way around. So, yeah, it just sort of come back to my, uh, my, my mind. Yeah. Mayor, Max Mayer. I knew the name would come back to you, come back to me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's brilliant. We're going to do some boaty bit now because the main, one of the main ops early in the war for the Hampton was gardening. And that's not me getting nagged by my wife to do the, the weeding it was something rather specific wasn't it Chris? Uh, yeah the Admiralty uh, came up with this great magnetic mine that they could, that could be dropped by aircraft which the RAF took away and tinkered and made it better and so originally it was going to fall to Coastal Command Bomber Command didn't want anything to do with gardening missions because they, they were reserving the planes for other duties but Coastal Command, two aircraft one of them, uh, the Beaufort, was, they didn't have enough numbers and the other ones whose name I suddenly can't remember wasn't going to be ready and then didn't have the range. And the Admiralty were very, very keen on having magnetic mines dropped around Kiel and uh, to block the canal and the naval base. They didn't, again, coming back to um, not wanting to upset the civilians, they didn't want to put them around the Dutch and Belgian coast where they could hit civilian ships. And the Hamden had the perfect range to get, get out to Kiel and get back again. So on these sort of operations, there are a few names that we would recognize one in particular yeah uh, guy gibson what uh used to fly um gardening raids and shot down a his his hamden shot down a dornier off um cherbourg one evening uh coming back they it was caught caught up in a searchlight so uh they turned to follow it and they said they they must have been i remember him saying something along those lines of these guys must have been going back for breakfast or something because it was um they had all their cockpits lit up and um were, itching to get back to the airfield and they didn't even notice the Hamden creeping up behind them and um, came both barrels. How effective were the gardening raids? Um, I believe they sank, they worked out that um, 120 ships were sunk by all cause or by all types of mine from 1940 to 1941 and they think 86 of them were by um, gardening, um, gardening dropped mines. Which is, which is quite something. Darren? When the Hamden sort of first come back into the public notice it was uh, through an article in Flypast and, uh, and then I was getting contacts from people and I had this gentleman uh, come to meet me and he, he flew 30 ops on Hamdens with the same crew but he was doing a lot in Brest Harbour and he limped Hamdens back to Exeter from doing the gardening ta- tasks out there. And interestingly he did 30 ops with the same crew I think they ended up with one, one broken finger between four of them. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And we, I, I, the obvious question is why? And he said, I don't know, guardian angel. 
that's a lucky crew. Yeah, yeah, very lucky crew. The, uh, I've got photographs of. Um, we've actually got the, uh, the mirror in the museum collection from Hamden. He, he parked, as he called it, in um, a Little Driftfield as he was coming into the airfield there, running out of fuel, coming back for an operation. And then there's a little. He had a little book, a naughty naughty book, which he shouldn't have had, which is explaining all his ops, which actually meant great reading. But there was like this drawing of these houses, outhouses, Hamden with a bent tail boom on it, undercarriage here, undercarriage there. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's enough about Hamden's because just behind us if I squidge around in my seat we have what, what is frankly a work of art because we have a Wellington Mark 10, 10. 10 with its skin off so we can see the absolutely stunning Barnes-Wallace geodesic design Barnes-Wallace went, went to school just down the road from where I live so that's always nice but the Wellington is sort of the, the first of, of the, new, the new breed of bombers that enters Bomber Command Service, and then, amazingly, continues all the way through the war on, on various marks. So the Mark 10 we've got behind us, that Darren's going to tell us about in a minute, is, is, a, is a late model one. But just to describe to you, well, I'm just going to say it's absolutely stunning. There's turret at the front, turret at the back, cockpit towards the front, wing slightly forward to the centre, and then everywhere you look, it's just this absolutely gorgeous diamond design structure. Um, and then when you stick your head in it, it's very spacious when you consider it was from the same specification as the Hamden, which, you know, like I was saying, is, is as wide as my belt, to, to something which you could consider the, 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 one of the first modern, modern British bombers. Certainly can, yeah. Um, I remember the name, it was Peter McDermott, so we'll get back onto the Wellingtons now. Uh, I knew they were, it would come to me in the end, yeah. And, and what's the, the width on the Wellington fuse? I was just looking at it from here. Six, six eight, eight feet maybe, so significantly wider than the Hamden. And the one advantage, oh, well, one of the main advantages so of three, oh, three of my belts. Three of your belts, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah all three of our belts <laughs> together, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah. one of the advantages of, of the Wellington was, 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 the, was the wing spar area. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever been inside the bigger bombers, and, you, and the Hamden would have been the same. Uh, you had a big lump of metal between you, forward cockpit and the rear cockpit that you'd have to clamber over. Hamden, it was almost just like jumping over a garden gate. It was just literally that, that narrow. Um, just a couple of finger seals joined together, top and bottom. So yeah, just like hopping over a garden gate, probably not that more difficult. Other things, obviously, with the Hamden, uh, the Wellington, sorry, it's uh, fabric covered. So uh, that's one thing we're looking at doing uh, shortly here at Cosford in our in our paint shop. Uh, hopefully throughout this winter. And not sure. Um, we asked how long the process is going to take, and, and I've sort of shrugged my shoulders and said two months, two years. Don't know. We don't know until we get going. But you know, it'd be a nice operation for us to start at some point. Um, and the good thing is saying we were talking about the Hamden, there's 10 bullet holes one, on one side and there's one exit. So you've got nine pinging around inside the thing with the Wellington, with it being fabric covered. If you were being shot at, straight through, straight through the other fabric, the other side. So from uh, an aircraft crew, the air crew used to say they, they liked it for that. Plus it could take horrendous damage on it compared to, I, I think, things like the other bombers would just, just take. And it's all based around, as you mentioned, the diamonds. If you have a little look, there's a small diamond. If that diamond gets damaged, it's a slightly bigger one. If that one gets damaged, it's a slightly bigger one. There comes a point when, yes, it is not going to be able to survive anymore, but there's some brilliant photos out there of, of Wellington's uh, limping back with half of the back end, not even there. It's, it, it really is a, a remarkable design, and, of course, Wallace tried to continue that geodesic design on his four-engine bomber, which never 
saw the light of the day, wasn't it? Or it did see the light of day, it didn't enter my service. But we're not going to talk about that. So what's the story of, of your aircraft here? This is a um, T-10, as we mentioned, so that's the Bristol Hercules engine. Uh, later variant, it was a 1944 aeroplane built at Squires Gate in Blackpool. And the reason she's in such good condition is 44 aeroplane, um, possibly went on one or two operations, but she was a training aeroplane, hence why she's still here. Never really had time to get um, out there over Germany and, and, and shot down. Uh, what else do we know about her? Um, she was the last ever flying Wellington, and the Wellington numbers, um, it's 11,500 11, round about that manufactured. Uh, there's this one which is the complete one and the only other one of any significant size is the um, lovely one that came out of Loch Ness which is now on display at Brooklands. So again, incredibly rare object. So vital statistics, two engines, how many crew? That varied um, and again depends if you, I'm not too sure, so you're always going to have your pilot, you're always going to have your bomb aimer, you're going to have a wireless operator, you're going to have three. Depends on how many gun positions. This has got front and rear, so there's another two. Um, some of them also had gun positions on the side, so you maybe have another one or two others in, in the crew. And then, of course, this within a trainer, would you count the instructor possibly on board and, and the trainees? So this, this at times, could po probably have been carrying as many as ten. Which is more than you would think, yeah. generally. But um, Okay, and bomb load? Not so short, actually, um, on the bomb load. It's something you ought to know, but it is more than the Hamden. Um, I, I think it's more up around about three tonnes. We look at the author, who's, yeah, who's, yeah. who's looking as confused as the rest yeah, of us, so yeah, we're, we're, we're going to leave that. But, <laughs> but we're going to move swiftly on from that. Your particular aircraft, you, you sort of said she's last, last of two. How, how did she end up here? Um, there's photographs of her at the... Um, a, garden, a Royal Aeronautical Society garden party, I think, and that was in the 60s, something like that. And um, after that, she was decommissioned and then eventually ended over at the R. Um, it given it over to the museum, but she was on public display down at Hendon. And the, pro the problem you've got when you come to uh, looking after these objects, um, Hamden, keep going back to Hamden, but Hamden Spitfires, these sort of things, fairly easy to look after inside a hangar. They're metal, they want the dry, they like the warm. Wellington has got this fabric covering which is a natural product, Irish linen. So ideally that wants a little bit of moisture. You can't spray them with moisture because the petals don't like it. So in the, she was inside a, a, a building in Hendon being kept dry for the metal. Very, very little corrosion on it. We found odds and sods here and there, um, but very, very, nothing more than sort of surface finish. So yeah, the, what was happening down there was the fabric was drying out and it become almost like the Lysander we got like, so it's the same reason for the Lysander coming here as well that we got next to us, uh, the fabric was drying out and it was that paper thin, you could just literally put your finger through it. So the decision was made, take her off to space, she doesn't look good, let's get her up to Cosford and say we are the facility for the museum and this is where we do all this sort of work. Lysander, as you can see, she's being recovered now. Beautiful. Because the last thing you want is a, a little excited person getting under the rope and, yeah. <laughs> and putting their fist yeah. through it. Yeah. But she, 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 the Lysander we talk about here. Hopefully the, the, the Wellington will look like that in a few years' time. The Lysander, she's, she's beautiful. And again, she's been here, uh, I think she came up in two, early 2018, maybe late 2017. Um, and I would suggest the main thing we've done to her, apart from the fabric work and obviously the, the respray, it's just given her a real good clean. Mm -hmm. um, we've repaired a little bit of damage, uh, some of the structure inside the wing. 
but um, and when I say clean, that doesn't mean clean and then repaint all the cockpit out. No, all the foot marks and where the crews were getting in and just ring scuffs on uh, throttles or whatever, and that's all left there. We left it. So yeah, just removing all the museum dust and grime that gets into an object, uh, very much like your home, you know, when you pull the TV out, you give it, <laughs> it's like the same with these things, even though we clean them, clean them regularly, when you start taking your seats out, you suddenly start finding trust. So yeah, just giving it a really, really, really good clean. Um, we have a historic photograph of this one. My understanding is she's the only one with special ops uh, history, even though oh, there are wow. a few flying around in black colours. I think this one is the only one that was actually on it. And she's actually got the ladder on the side and she's actually got the long range tank on underneath, which interestingly are not on our aeroplane. So we've actually got a ladder. Uh, my metal worker's made a ladder. Uh, he's also making the framework for attaching the tank. One of my technicians has made us the tank. So that's that's the stage we're at now is putting um, sort of looking get those last couple of things fitted before she goes back to Hendon. Hence why we've got a suspended uh, the wings are off. She's still on her wheels, but we are holding her up from on a gantry from above just to help to take the weight because um, <clears throat> to actually fit the uh, fuel tank uh, structure, you have to remove uh, some of the bolts in the undercarriage uh, uh, system. So we're, we're making sure she we got full weight taken. I do love a Lizzie, and you've done a beautiful job. We're going to have to do a full episode mm. just just on 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 those arcs. But I might give you a sneaky on on the Lysander then when she goes on display. You can. It's yes. going to be very very interesting because so I say we've got this historic photograph, but on the historic photograph and I can't remember if we got it from the port side, but we got it from the starboard right side. On the engine cooling gills, the mechanical cooling gills that the pilots cannot open up, where the black and actually I think on the other side it's grey, not green. Um, where the gills overlap, there's one with both paints on, and she's one lower. She's actually in the black one, and the black one's up where the other one should be. Yeah. That's a historic photo, so she's going to end up like that. Fantastic. So everybody will look at it and go, they've assembled it wrong, but I can go, da da, it's actually historically <laughs> correct. So yeah, so yeah, it'd be quite interesting to see when we, we haven't swapped them over just yet. We just we've, we had them painted. I've asked them to do it, I don't think they've done it. I can't see it from where I'm sat. But, so yeah, when she goes down, it'd be interesting to see people giving it. <gasps> They've assembled it wrong, but now we can prove we're not. We're, we're there, actually right. There's going to be some people on some forums going absolutely mental. So that little aside allowed Chris to have a quick rummage in his book. So what is the bomb model of Wellington? The, the early models was four thousand five hundred pounds, but then I was That's two ton, yeah, just over two ton. Well done. Thanks. Damn, I said three. Damn. That was the later ones. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, they did the next, I was trying to skim read it because uh, I was really worried you were going to go. Uh, have you found, and it said I later models. I wouldn't do that to you. Um, later models, they reckon they, they um, did something to double it. I've been doing too much naval history over the last few years and a lot of my plane stuff's fallen out the back. He's, he's, you, you bring him up on a nice day out to Cosford and all you can think about is boats. <laughs> well, we could take him down there and let him see the range safety launch and leave him there alone while we look around the real exhibits. <laughs> yes, yeah, he, he can go look at the boat. We'll go back to the, the, the flying pencil that's beautifully set over there, beautifully for what's, what's left of it. But anyways, let's, okay, let's go slightly boaty here because when we're talking Wellingtons, especially early war, there's, there's one one specific battle that sort of stands out among all of them and as i can't pronounce it i'm going to ask you to tell me what that battle was chris uh, there was everyone gets hung up on the one day but there's actually three or four uh, battles of Hel helgoland bite um because as i said earlier the uh, the german fleet is a perfect perfect target because it is completely military even if you kill accidentally kill some dock workers with a miss bomb on the port you can still argue to the news well actually we were targeting the german fleet and the bite is 
within well within range and there, there, there was the belief that Wellingtons could fly en masse. Uh, the early marks had not only the tail gun but you had the a turret and also a bucket gun that dropped out the bottom of the hull so you, you could present a lot of guns towards any fighters coming from behind so Bomber Command believed that if they sent out a large enough formation they could fly over the target, drop the bombs, fight off any fighters and still get through, get back unfortunately it didn't work so let's let's sort of talk about that operation because it's it burned into a lot of people's memories and, and certainly had an effect on future future operations because it was I don't want to say it's the the first time the bomber didn't get through but it was a realization of just what a coordinated defense against a target would do to a bomber formation. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for bomber command, it, the belief that if Wellingtons couldn't get through. There was no way that Hamdens were going to get through. The Blenheims had already proved they couldn't get through in the first operations of the war when they attacked um, the German fleet. And the Whitley was just not going to happen. But they believed that the Wellington was strong enough and with its, um, with its design could take enough damage that it would be able to get the crews through. The problem was, well, they tried to blame the, the bomber commander. I think it was Kellett. Wing Commander Kellett was leading the formation of four... There were four squadrons worth... And um, because the formation broke up over the over over the bite, due to um, I think Kellett's formation flew over the target perfectly and then haired off, and the others were trying to keep up. And instead of being in a diamond, one of them was um, they were followed one behind the other. But they were also dispersed um, because it was the home of the German fleet, one of the homes of the German fleet. It had an amazing flak defence. It's one of the few places in Germany that had radar. They actually saw them coming. The, well, the navy saw them coming. They 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 patched it over to the Luftwaffe who refused to believe that the British were coming until they they flew over the target looped round and came back because most of the German fighter force were in the east in Poland the only two places that had a dedicated fighter defence force was Beit and the Ruhr so it was the only place to have its own um, proper fighter squadrons and so after they flew over the target 109s and 110s attacked them en masse and broke up the formations I have a rather facetious question which says, how did the operation go? As we're talking about it in these sorts of terms, I, I guess people can can realise, did, let's let's start with the bomber command view, was any damage done? Because there were some ships whose names we know in port at the time, weren't there? Yeah, I believe Scharnhorst and Nisnow were. I think there was also, um, I think there were two training ships sunk, but that might have been another day. But none, none of them were damaged at all in the bombing. I don't, I don't think they had, the bombs was powerful enough to do the damage to the, the, the armoured decks of the battle cruisers anyway. Battleships, battle cruisers, depending on what you think of them. Um, not <laughs> going into that. Battle cruisers. Um, That's my take on it. But um, the, 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 they weren't powerful enough to hit anyway, uh, to damage them anyway. And then the flak defences were enough to put them off their aim as well. But bomber, as I said, bomber command tried to blame bomber pilots for either not lowering the bucket guns to prevent, present more fire, or um, that they weren't in flying in formation properly. Because clearly, it wasn't a problem with the plan. The plan was perfect; is that the pilots didn't execute it properly, and unfortunately, those those were the poor sods that didn't come back. Probably going to put you on the spot here, but. Over the course of those three raids, what sort of losses were we talking? The last one was the worst yeah. one. I can't remember how many off the top of my head, but um, at least one formation was completely decimated. Problem was they didn't have self they didn't have the self sealing fuel tanks in the wings either, 
So a few stray bullets here or there, and the whole thing goes up in flames. One of the planes uh, dropped altitude. I think this one actually got away. It dropped altitude because the co-pilot's um, parachute strap got caught on one of the controls. And um, so they dropped altitude, and the Germans thought it was crashing, so they ignored it. They did, they did shoot down a couple of 109s that got too close. But on the whole, they just, um, they just took them apart. Um, with the Messerschmitt 110 being able to fire four machine guns and two cannon into them. And it's just ripping them apart. Even the um, turrets weren't enough to put them off for long. It's one of those raids, especially early on, well, there's, there's, there's plenty in your book that you think we should probably think about more, but these, these ones were a sort of massive wake-up call to, to bomber, bomber Command that sort of took a little while to, to, to sink in. But what were the lessons learned coming out of it? Um, daylight raids over Germany were not a good idea. The, even the, the bomber couldn't get through. Um, like I said, if the, if the Wellington can't get through, in, in num large numbers and are, are being decimated by what, what was there, then um, there's no way any of the others could. So that night time would be the best defence, which they'd found in the Nichols anyway because there were German fighter defence was really just 109s would take off, fly around, see if they could find anything in the dark. Didn't really get anything. Although Helgoland Bight did provide something good for the Germans because um, oh, it, it was the same news day that they'd had to break to the neutral press that Graf's Bay had been scuttled off um, Montevideo. And as the press went out, an Air Force officer came running in. And suddenly the propaganda ministry came in, no, come back, come back, come back. And everyone came in and was like, we've just decimated a Wellington raid. This is how many we've shot down. For now, this is how many our losses were. And they just, for them, it was the good news they needed for the neutral press that day. So it, it did, for, for their propaganda value, it was really worthwhile. It's a little bit of shine off Harwood's victory then. Yeah. Darren, yep. operations of the Wellington, you know, you, you've got this stunning example here. I'm putting you on the spot here because <laughs> I haven't prepared you for this question. During, during your time here at the museum, have you had many Wellington crews come up? Because there's very few of them left, as we we're saying, that these aircraft, you, you know, especially the Hamden, very early war, so that just that little bit more, we've, we've, we've lost too many of those veterans already. Um. We, one thing we've always done here, and I say it really started with the Hamden article in the Fly Pass magazine where um, it sort of kicked off the interest and then the Wellington come up here. We do open up um, if uh, people uh, have got veterans out there who flew these during the war. And that's not just flying them, we're in the factories, manuf um, doing the manufacturing, and want to come see them again. Get in contact with me, you're in. It's as simple as that. It's just when. Uh, when can we find a suitable time? But yeah, so I've been very, very fortunate. And, I'm an engineer, I love working on these things, I've been involved with these things, but to meet the veterans. And sometimes you're meeting families who phone me up and say, hey, my, my uncle was killed in a Hamden Wellington in the war. What is a Hamden Wellington? So I invite them in as well, and it gives them a little bit of closure. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's the very nice part. There's a lot of sadness as well. You have to think, even when the veterans come here, because not one of them went through the war without losing a friend or something like that, yeah. so they, they've all known loads of people. Um, Few, there's a few little things I try to uh, remind the families um, when they get here. There's a very good chance that they will, their, their mood will change a little bit. They might go a little bit somber and upset, and that's because the reflection's coming back. And because typically they haven't spoken to the families about these things. They're, they're, yeah, I was in the air force. I flew whatever is during the war and was based here, there, whatever. Um, but the day-to-day -day stuff they don't know. Then they come in here, 
with the veterans and the veterans took a tape starts going mm -hmm. they get next to them and the families start learning so so much and it, it it's amazing to be here and to meet these people the you know, we're getting close to finishing on the Wellington now, and I'd love to finish off with a, a story. As I say, I've got so many in my head, and that's where most of them are. But um, during one of our open weeks, a uh, gentleman come in with his family. I think there would have been his son, daughter, and their, their children with them as well. So there was like three generations, probably about five or six of them in total. And he said, yeah, I was a rear gunner on the Wellington. He, and he said, yeah, wow, still alive, yeah. Um, how many operations? Uh, 35. Okay, where were you based? Mainly in North Africa. Then he turned around to his family and went, I bailed out five times. So that was one in every seven flights. He jumped out as a rear gunner. And don't forget, they were in the turret. They had to get out and get their chute on. He was, okay, he was jumping into the med. He admitted that. Warm, warm water. Not jumping into the cold water, but got rescued. But just think of that about being shot down, crashed aeroplane, so you can see it going down, possibly lost some of your crew. You get rescued, and then he put you back in another airplane, and you still go off the wall incredible but for him to tell his family that here they weren't white they mm. didn't know the interesting one is well when he could, and then he, he sort of did a follow-on and went right oh yeah on, on the, the last time i bailed out i sort of crikey what's coming now he said we were shot up by a messerschmitt 109 uh quite badly he said over the headset we had this word abracadabra he said if you heard that over the, over the headset that meant one thing shoot on get out and he said i heard the call got out my turret turned around he said literally right behind the airplanes were coming down uh, he said there was a Messerschmitt 109, a German was eye to eye with me. He said literally about 20 metres behind me. Uh, he said the German had done what he, what he needed to do, and that was to bring the airplane down. What happened to the crew was fate. If they survived, so be it. Um, he said the German looked at him, gave him a salute, turned the airplane and flew away. And the family looked at me and said, what does that mean? I said, well, if the German had just pressed one button with the, uh, your father, grandfather that close, I said, he wouldn't be stood here telling that story and you wouldn't be on this planet now. And they just went white. So, you know, it's those very, very powerful stories that we get to hear in here against these beautiful, beautiful objects. And I say, you know, that makes my job very, very worthwhile. Couple, interestingly, just a couple of re recently, um, again, I'm going to hate, I'm going to be killed for saying this now because I'm going to get so much coming in. Um, la last week, uh, we had an email come in. There's a gentleman in the care home. Care home contacted us. He was on Lancaster's and Wellington's during the war. Can the museum do something? So we got the Lancaster end and somebody down there, I recorded a couple of minute video of wishing him happy birthday and just showed him around the Wellington. Interesting, I come in Monday, had another another email come in um, to our customer care team, uh, gentleman who's 100 this Sunday. Uh, his family contacted the museum, he was in Burma on Spitfires. So this morning I've been in next to Mark 1 recording him a, a message. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's a new line for me, just getting my mobile out, just standing high. Happy birthday, let me show you around Spitfire. Um, just had a little chat about the Spitfire and wish him happy birthday again. So yeah, I'd do that all day long for them. And that's, I guess, what, why you guys do what you do to keep these aircraft in these, this incredible condition. And it's, it's really tragic that we're reaching that point now where you might not have that, that enjoyable job for much longer. Yeah, meeting the veterans, but um, the families will still be out there, the ones that suddenly re start researching history and find they've lost somebody in a Wellington, Hamden, whatever, during the war, and will want to know more, so keeping the helping them. You know, just being able to bring them here and just saying, well, look, he was a wireless operator, that's where he would have sat, that would have been his wireless operator, this is what he would have seen, this is what he would have smelt in the war, and it, it helps them, mm -hmm. gives them a little bit of closure, especially if they were lost during the war. 
Um, yeah, and sometimes you know you obviously just hear the sad side. A lot, a lot of them were lost. What's it about half half bomber command? Was it 56 percent, somewhere around yeah. about that, were lost during the war? That's a huge number of, of lives lost. It's a sombre note to start wrapping things up, but I think it's it's appropriate for the period that we're, we're speaking because a lot of what would come um, had to have a start and the lessons that were learned in these early years and in other aircraft than, than these two here needed needed to go in for what was to become quite a a bloody battle in the in the night skies over over Germany and occupied Europe. So we're going to end it there. I'd like to thank Chris Sams for joining me. Just to repeat that his book, which is actually very good, and I'm not just saying that because he's a mate, Flying Into the Storm, RF Bomber Command, 1939 to 42, is available now. Genuinely, it is a very good read. And Darren, thank you so much for having us um, up to Cosford to have a look around and to be fair I think I'm going to sneak straight back over and have a look at the Donier but thank uh, you so much <laughs> maybe a quick extra but yeah that's that is quite something thank you so much my pleasure thank you for coming when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.